Please join us for our service already in progress. So, yeah, probably, probably not. Uh, and, and praise God, there is redemption for all. I just didn't, didn't quite expect to be sitting in the living room with bank robbers, you know, and such a free confession. And there, there are other stories. I might share a few others here in this sermon. But, uh, you know, sometimes there are some funny things that happen to pastors. One, one other quick one. You know, and, and I, I was glad to do it, but I, I, got, I, I got asked once to, to do a funeral. I said, absolutely, who's it for? And, and it was um, for, for my dog. And <laughs> I kind of had to scratch my head and say, excuse me? And uh, then it turned out it wasn't being asked just to do a funeral for the dog, but it was asked actually to um, help put said dog out of its misery and then say a few words. And, and I had to really scratch my head. Like, you know, in seminary, they didn't say, this is how you kill a dog and then do a funeral for it. And so um, I'll, I'll tell you more about how that ended later. But, uh, you know, there, there are just, there's some funny things you get asked to do as a pastor sometimes. But a question that might come up, especially in light of, say, the last 18 months or so, the pandemic being at home, not being able to go to church, is this question. Do we need pastors? I mean, is there any difference, say, between just kind of doing Christian walk on your own versus having a a pastor and a church family? And I think what Paul would say in his words to live by is, absolutely, we need a church family and we need God-qualified pastors. I said we've been in this series, Words to Live By. It's from this phrase at the beginning of each of these verses that Paul has given to two pastors, one to Timothy and one to Titus. The phrase is, this is a trustworthy saying. And, and we've heard this now three times. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Remember, this is the gospel. This is the fact that God so loved us that he sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He never did any sin, and then he chose to take the punishment that every sinner deserves when he died on the cross in our place for our sin. And then he really died and he really rose from the grave. And that's good news only if we respond the way the Bible tells us to. That is by turning from our sin in repentance and turning to Jesus alone for salvation. That was the good news Paul first wanted Timothy to cling to. And then we looked at the second one in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where Paul said, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. And we saw that godliness means both becoming like God, but also knowing God, because you can't become like a God you don't know. And that knowing God means discovering who God is from the Bible and putting in the time to really study and understand and worship the God who is revealed in Holy Scripture. And we went through all these aspects of God, but one of my favorites is that God is beautiful. The beauty that we see in creation teaches us that we are worshiping a beautiful God. 
And then last week, we read this in Titus chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the idea that once we know God, and, and especially know Jesus as Lord and Savior, He, he doesn't just kind of leave us to our own devices. He gives us the Holy Spirit to renew us and make us new more and more in the likeness of Jesus. We, we saw how it begins when the Holy Spirit gives us the new birth or regenerates us. And then when we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus justifies us before the Father. That is, he declares us right. And then that Holy Spirit does the work of making us more like Jesus each and every day until we either die or Jesus returns and the Father glorifies us forever. So these are the words so far that we're supposed to live by. And today we're going to look at this fourth faithful saying from Paul, again to Timothy. And, and like I said, where we're going is that God has given us the church to bless us in our walks with Jesus. And he's uniquely called pastors to this noble work. Well, as we have done, and, and I hope to continue to do, if you are able I invite you to stand in honor of reading God's word. This is exactly what Ezra led the Old Testament church to do. So we're just following that example from 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Thank you. You may be seated. You saw there at the beginning of verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. So again, words to live by. This is Paul's way of saying, Timothy, listen up. Latch on to these words. Hold on to them. These are words to live by. Each of these faithful sayings today deserves our full attention. In a fast-paced world where I, I know, you know, I mean, what are you going to do for lunch? What's going to go on this afternoon? Tomorrow morning, you got to get to work. What all? I, let's slow down. Let's give this time to the Lord and just say, God, help me to have some words I can live by. Now look with me at the rest of verse 1. He starts, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. That word overseer um, is where we get the idea of pastor. There are several words used in the New Testament. It all means, they all mean very similar things, but from different angles of what it means to be a pastor. So overseer 
is, is the word episcope. Think episcopal, you know? Uh, it just means a supervisor in the church, a church leader, someone who engages in this position of responsibility over the church. Another word in the New Testament is shepherd, taken right from the idea of shepherding a flock, guiding them to continue to follow Jesus. Uh, finally, there's the word elder, and that's just trying to tease out the idea that a pastor is one who should have spiritual maturity. So you put them all together, and the word for pastor in the New Testament, these different words, mean that a pastor is one who is called to the responsibility to lead and to spiritually care for those in the body of Jesus. Now, Redemption Church, I am blessed to serve as a pastor alongside other fellow elders and pastors. And what you should know is the the other elders and pastors of this church went through a pretty rigorous process of assessing their qualifications and, and of equipping these men to serve you faithfully as pastors. And we wholeheartedly believe we are one church family under a great leader, our King Jesus. And so any of us would be quick to tell you if you asked, well, who's in charge here? We would smile and say, King Jesus is in charge here, and we are blessed to serve under him as leaders at this church. So Paul is going to say to Timothy, hey, Timothy, you might wonder, well, well, at this church, who is it that can serve as a pastor? And Paul gives Timothy this list of things to make sure that God's person is serving as pastor of this church. And the reason being is this. Again, this is Jesus's church. And these pastors are called to serve in such a way that Jesus is honored and the body is blessed. So let's look at some of these together. Again, in verse 1, it starts, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That word he is quite contentious today. And so, so that you can see it straight from the Bible, a pastor must be of the male gender. That's why the Bible is unapologetic in saying he. And, and if we doubt, in verse 2, it's going to say the husband of one wife. This means that the, the role of pastor in a church is reserved for a man or a biological male. Now, at Redemption Church, praise the Lord. We have women serving, godly Christian women, in a wonderful variety of ways. It is not an understatement to say if all the women just said, well, that's it, I ain't serving, basically we wouldn't have church. (laughs) Uh, The women of Redemption serve in all kinds of capacities, and I praise God for their godly service. But it is to say that the Bible teaches that the role of pastor is reserved for a Christian man. Now look at verse 2. It says there, above reproach. An overseer must be above reproach. So not just any Christian man, right? But a Christian man who's above reproach. It's as if Paul wanted Timothy to, as he's thinking about helping train up future pastors there at the church at Ephesus, he wanted to go and talk to their boss, their employer, and just find out what are they like in the business world. And he didn't mean you have to go find somebody who's sinless, but you did need to find a Christian man who is honorable in his dealings 
in the business world. So he wanted to ask, I, I mean, generally, are they, are they trustworthy? Do, do his customers or his clients know him as a man of his word? Do, do they uh, depend on when he commits to do something, he gets it done? What's he like? How's, how's his reputation in the business world? Is he above reproach? And so if there's anyone here who aspires one day to serve as a pastor, know this, it is very much on you to be respectable and above reproach in how you deal with people at work. Whether that's, that's uh, selling things or serving your country or uh, having a, a position where you're driving a truck or, or you're behind the counter taking money, are, are you trustworthy? Do the, the people that you do business with day in, day out, would they say, oh yeah, yeah, we can depend on him. He is above reproach. And so after that relationship, then in verse 2, Paul wants to turn to a different person to ask. He says, the husband of one wife. Now he says, hey, Timothy, I want you to go ask the wife. What's he really like? This phrase, the husband of one wife, has had so much controversy over the years. It is just incredible. Uh, Paul just meant, hey, Timothy, go ask the man's wife What's he like at home? Is he above reproach there too? Does he treat his wife in such a way that she is blessed and honored, that he is a one-woman man? Here's the controversy. Some have said this means that uh, if you are not married, you can never serve as a pastor. Others have turned around and said in church history that uh, if you're married, you can't serve as a pastor. And then there have been those who say, well, if, if you've ever had a divorce, even if it was before you knew Jesus or if it was for uh, biblical grounds that Jesus gave you, uh, you know, uh, the, the exception there, that that doesn't matter. You can't serve as pastor. And, and then I even read one that says, well, no, no, what this is talking about is if you marry someone who was a widow, that you're forbidden from being a pastor. And I, I just think so much of it has clouded the issue. I think what this is saying is, hey, pastor, remember, you are held to a higher standard. That there, there are some things that, of course, you can be forgiven of under the shed blood of Christ, but it may disqualify you from serving as a pastor of a church. James would say it this way, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Strictness, excuse me, James chapter 3 verse 1. What he meant there is, hey, pastors are called to teach, and so pastors, you're going to be held to a higher standard. John Stott, a great commentator, said that this should... Remind pastors that your character and how you treat your wife is going to be held and evaluated as you consider whether or not you're called to a pastor. He said this. He said, your love life and your sex life is going to be held to a higher standard. Now, I don't mean to say that the Bible teaches if you ever take one toe out of line, that's it. But here's what it does mean. Ongoing failings with pornography, divorcing one's wife on unbig, unbiblical grounds, ongoing failings with lust, unrepentant sexual sin, being caught 
in sexual sin and moral compromise, Jesus can forgive these things, but they should disqualify a pastor for serving in the sacred calling and noble work over the church of Jesus. Step back for just a minute, and this is going to be a theme this morning. You might say, well, I'm not going to serve as pastor. Why do I have to listen to this? I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for the elders of this church, and I need you to pray for pastors in the church of Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to keep us faithful in this noble calling. We cannot do it without your prayers. Must be the husband of one wife. And then he says these two words here. It's, it's as if he's going to turn and, and he's going to give us kind of this picture of here's what a pastor is supposed to be. And then the opposite picture, this is not what a pastor is supposed to be. So on the positive side are these words, uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. That's what a pastor should be. And then on the other side, the things that they shouldn't be is not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. So where it says sober-minded there in verse 2, this is, we, we can get complicated, right, when we hear the minded part. Just think sober. And the opposite would be not a drunkard. That is the, the, the first kind of then character aspect when we're looking at a pastor should be somebody who's not addicted to either alcohol or some other mind-altering substance. And this, again, raises this hot-button issue. There's so many around the office of a pastor. Can a pastor drink alcohol? And, and I have just seen good Christians, I mean, just about go to war over whether or not a pastor can drink alcohol. And then, by extension, can a Christian drink alcohol? Well, well first, come on, come on, step back. If there are two Christians who love Jesus and who have been forgiven, there should not be a war over a subject like this, right? We should be able to find a way to love one another and to come to some agreement with Scripture as our guide on how to move forward. So if it's causing some kind of crazy heated argument, I mean, step back, take a minute and pray because there should be a way that we can talk to one another with love over an issue like this. And then second, I'd say, remember, we're talking about here a Christian pastor. Not every Christian and we've already said a Christian pastor is held to a higher standard because of his role in leading the church of Jesus. So while we may come to one conclusion about what a Christian pastor is called to be, that's not to say that that is a requirement of every Christian. And I think the area of alcohol is front and center here. Now, to somebody who desires to be a Christian pastor, I'd say this. It's going to be your job to wrestle with whether alcohol is more important to you than pastoring. Whether alcohol is more important to you than pastoring. And if the answer is, you know, I've got to give up alcohol to be a pastor, then, then I just don't think I want that. Then that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If there is really any substance that is more important to you than pastoring, then, then don't become a pastor. Please do not because that substance will ultimately uh, control how you do your job. Fourth, a Christian who drinks and wants to be a pastor, I, I would just um, ask this question honestly. Will 
the drinking help or hinder my pastorate? And I think there are different answers to that question, but I think it has to be asked honestly. Will drinking alcohol, and I would put under the same category, smoking a cigarette and other type things, will this substance help or hinder my pastorate? Now, for me personally, I want you to know this, church family, uh, I have committed not to drinking alcohol. And my, my reasoning is, is many, um, but I'm not saying that's incumbent on every Christian person. And I'm not even saying that's incumbent on every Christian pastor. But for me, I have wrestled with these issues and come to the conclusion that I am able to be a better pastor for Jesus by just committing not to drink. For so many, especially for those for whom alcohol has just devastated their family and, and led them into places that they never would have gone had they not been pushed by that mind-numbing drug, um, I'm going to love that brother, and I just, I'm, I'm choosing not to drink. I would like you to pray for me and help hold me accountable to that end. Now, I do think when Paul comes back and he says, not a drunkard, every Christian pastor for sure has, not, has got to be one who is not addicted to alcohol. And, and I've heard, well, well, I don't get drunk, so I must be okay. But if you've ever been through any kind of addiction training, you'll know that the addiction can happen in a variety of ways. Addiction doesn't just mean, you know, you drink 12 beers, you know, you, you finish the whole pack at once and you can't drive. Addiction means you can't go without it. There is a, a book by George W. Bush called Decision Points, and it's his autobiography. And the first chapter is called quitting. And his wife asked him this question one day. She said, uh, when is the last night you went without a drink of alcohol? And, and former President Bush would have said uh, he was so proud in that moment. He said, oh, I'll tell you. And so he starts with, with the last night. And he said, well, okay, yeah, I had some bourbon that night. And he goes to the night before. He said, okay, I was out with the guys for beers that night. And he goes to the night before. And he said, well, it was after dinner and it had been a long week. And so, yeah, I made my favorite drink. And they go back to the night before. Well, well, well so-and-so invited us out for dinner. And so we had to have a few martinis then. And he works his way back night after night after night. He gets to a month and then six weeks, and he cannot think of one night he has gone without having needed a drink. And, and that was how his wife helped him to see, you're an addict. You're addicted to alcohol. You need this every day for one reason or another. And, and Bush cites it as one of those decisive turning points in his life where he owned up to being addicted to alcohol, and he got some counseling. And he says, I never, never have been where I was. And when he was asked about it later, he said, he started to wonder through it this way. Did I want to spend time at home with our girls or stay out drinking? You don't have to be a pastor to hear this. If you are the type that needs some substance every day, I don't care the the the. Uh, excuse or the logic you give, but that's the definition of an addict. You need the substance. It, it can be alcohol. It can be cigarettes. It could be uh, chocolate or, or barbecue meat. I mean, but if you need that substance every single day just to make it, you're an addict and you need some help. And praise God there is help for us in Jesus Christ. You can change. 
He broadens then to this idea of self-control, and I think that really means everything else he's talking about. Self-control in terms of respectable and hospitable, not violent and not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. This is just, hey, Christian pastor, you've got to be a man of self-control. When it says respectable in verse 2, that's just this question. Christian, can you control your words so that you are a man who gives others respect? Respect for authority, respect for all people made in the image of God. That is something we should expect of our elders. And then the opposite of this would be things like violent or quarrelsome instead of gentle. Right? Uh, uh, pastors are those you're going to talk with people, and you're going to talk with people when they're struggling. And so if, if you cannot use your words in a respectful way, you're going to have this couple fighting, and, and your, your blood's going to start to boil, and you're going to want to jump into the mix and just tell them what for, you know? Just, just jump in and, and, hey, let that guy have it. I, I could remember this couple who came to me and, and said they wanted some counseling, but they started the conversation something like this. Well, we already know that we're getting a divorce. We, we've already talked to lawyers. We just thought we'd give you uh, one quick shot, and, and we're sure that you're going to bless this divorce. And, and I mean, that was the gist of how the conversation started. And I said, well, hi, my name is Pastor Jared. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, just, and, and they, they just started going at it right away. If, if you're the type that loves a fight, you know, you, you might make a great litigator, uh, but you're not going to make a great pastor. Uh, you, you have to be able to kind of step back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, when, when we're going at it, the only person who's going to win here is Satan. This, this person you married is not the enemy. Let's step back for a second. Let's pray and let's come at this as a team trying to work through an issue. Uh, but you're, you just are not going to make it if you're the type who has to argue and win that argument every time. You can't be the one who has to win that fight. And then on the other end are these two, the words hospitable and not a lover of money. Hospitable means you've got to consider the goods and the time that God gives you resources to bless others. So that means your home is open to being a hospital. And it also means that the time and the money is, is open to being used to bless others. The opposite would be somebody who so loves money that, that in no way, no, 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 that's my home. That's, that's my dinner. That's, that's my car. That's my, pastor, you're going to be called to use the resources God stewards you to, to bless others. Your home is likely going to be a place of ministry as well as the car God's entrusted to you and the money as well. So uh, hospitable, not a lover of money. And I'll just say this um, to my, my brothers who are pastors, and if you meet another pastor, please pray for them on this. So many have been led to some kind of compromise over fear of losing a paycheck. Well, well, well I can't say that. I can't do that because I, I no longer would get paid. God, keep us from that. Pray for this, pastor, please that I would lead by conviction and not by fear of whether or not I'd lose a paycheck. Now look with me down in verse 6. Paul warns, he must not be a recent convert 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Hey, kids, look up at me here for just a second. How many of you know, just raise your hand, that there is a real devil? Raise your hand if you know that. If there is really a devil, that's right, that's right. I see those hands. He's also called Satan. Now, let me just tell you something about him. He's real, and we're going to talk about him here just a little bit. And it might seem a little scary, but let me tell you what. He was defeated when Jesus rose from the dead. He proved it that Satan cannot beat our King Jesus. So even though I'm going to tell you a little bit about the devil, you don't have to be afraid of him. You can trust Jesus. This talks about following into the condemnation of the devil. Uh, Parents and, and kids, remember this. Satan was once an angel. Glorious light, it says. Jesus is the one who will say, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And, and, and I think he is referring to some time before Adam and Eve when Satan led a rebellion in heaven and, and, and convinced a third of the angels to go with him in rebelling against Almighty God. And it did not pan out well. We, we're not given many details. Uh, but this one verse, the condemnation of the devil, is connected to the idea of becoming puffed up or conceited. And so it may be that what crept into Satan's mind is all that worship, all that glory that was going to God, he deserved a little bit of that. That he was doing such a good job, he deserved a little bit of the kingdom for himself. Now, we certainly know when we see Satan on the scene, he is the one who is that snake slithering in the garden and comes up to Eve and says, hey, 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 um, you can eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. Oh, you're not going to surely die. You're going to be like God. Those voice, that, 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 that words that come from that mouth, that's a very arrogant tongue that thinks it knows better than God. And so what this means for pastors is if we get into leading church with this idea that we're going to build our own kingdom, we're going to make a name for ourselves, we're going to get this following and everybody's going to say how good I am, that, that, that thinking is satanic. Please pray for me and pray for us as a church of Jesus that we would be led by men of humility who are about making much of Jesus and not themselves. The last one there had said about not falling into disgrace because of dealings with outsiders. And and this just means, again, a proven track record of working well with others. You you can't be a pastor uh, who who the outside world can look at your life and just, just know that something is wrong, something is desperately wrong. I'll just give you two brief examples here. Growing up, I worked, uh, just was attending a church with a pastor, and, and, you know, for a while, I think, walked with the Lord, was a godly man, but something happened, and I don't know what, and I don't need to know what, but it came out that um, he had been slowly stealing money from the church, 
had a full Swiss bank account and everything, had been embezzling funds, I mean, to the tune of six figures, uh, well over $100,000. And, of course, found out, and he, he was fired from that church. And, you know, if, if that man repented and, and trusted in Jesus, I, I do think Jesus could forgive him of that sin of stealing money from the church. But this passage would teach us that that disgrace, that, that, that public breaking of the law, he's disqualified. He can no longer serve as pastor. One other one, and it's so sad, but I knew another who was, uh, seemed like a great youth pastor, uh, a great with the, the kids and did so well. But it came out that, that he had been having uh, sexual relations with one of the girls in the youth group. And, and this not only is sad and sinful, this is criminal. And it had to be reported right to the police, and he had to be arrested and thrown in jail for this. This was disgraceful. Now, if I was asked, could, could this man be forgiven of his sins? Absolutely. Praise God, there is forgiveness in Jesus. Can he serve as pastor again? No. No, he is disqualified for the disgrace that, that he brought on the church. The, the little phrase there in verse 3 said, able to teach. We've talked about all these things, about, you know, his relationship in the business world, his relationship at home, uh, whether or not he is above reproach, whether or not um, you can uh, trust his words and, and, and how he deals with money and, and also what he's in for. Is he in for making much of the name of Jesus or himself? Has he committed anything that is just disgraceful? And then we get to this idea of able to teach. And Kids, remember I'd asked you, what does a pastor do? And one of the simple things that a pastor does is to open the Bible and help explain it in such a way that we can all understand it. A pastor should be able to open the Bible and explain it in such a way that everybody understands it. So he's got to be a man who is willing to study his Bible and to read good Christian books and even to go to school uh, so that he can be better trained, so that he can teach well. And it's good in two ways that we've had a lot that comes before this. I think there are some young men who all they want to do is, is study and, and train and, and know, say, their Greek and their Hebrew, which is good, but so much of everything else we've talked about is character, not competency. Competency is part of it, but character is first, walking with the Lord and godly character. And there is some competency. You should expect a pastor to be able to teach. And that means you should expect a pastor to spend time in the Word every week working hard to bring the Word, whether he's teaching a Sunday school class or up here preaching, in such a way that you understand what the Bible is saying. And, and so if there's a young man who has any kind of aspiration of going into Christian ministry as a pastor, but it's like, you know, I don't really enjoy reading my Bible a whole lot. I certainly would never want to go to seminary, and I just kind of like people, but I don't, I don't want to study. Uh, that's not a pastor. You should expect more than, than somebody who just Googles a sermon and, and sits up and reads somebody else's message. This should be part and parcel of the job description, able to teach. Now, there's one other 
in the qualifications, and this one gets the most attention. It's interesting. I already talked about the husband of one wife, but look with me back in verses 4 and 5. Paul said the pastor, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He gets two whole verses to talk about the pastor's family life. You see, a Christian man who's qualified to be a pastor has got to start in the home learning how to love and to lead his wife and kids well. How to, how to sacrifice for them, how to guide them with respect towards and how to teach in his home. Pastor Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes in the history of the church, was used in a mighty way in the 1700s to lead a great awakening in this country. And, and he would go on to be one of the first presidents of the College of New Jersey. We know it as Princeton today. So this was no dummy. And, and you know what happened to Jonathan Edwards? He actually got fired from his church for teaching that to be a member of the church, you had to be a Christian. Can you imagine that? You have to actually be a Christian to be a member of a church. And his church in New England hated that so much that they fired him over it. And he had this last sermon to give to this church and, and wanted to bless them as he was leaving. And this is what he said. He said, let me now, therefore, once more, before I finally cease to speak to this congregation, repeat and earnestly press the counsel, which I've often urged, on the heads of families. While I was their pastor, to great painfulness in teaching and in warning and directing their children, bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, beginning early where there is yet opportunity and maintaining constant diligence in all labors of this kind, every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rules. Family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. Elders, your first calling is to your families, to love them and to lead them in the honor and discipline of the Lord. That's your first calling before anything else at this church. Anybody who aspires to the office of pastor, that is your first calling is home base in the family. And then Christian men, listen to me, because again, you may say, well, I ain't, I ain't called to be a pastor. Uh, your first arena, when you stand before the judgment seat someday, you're going to have to answer to King Jesus, what did you do to lead your family closer to Jesus? There's this kind of trend that I've seen as I have pastored at different churches where, you know, you bring, say, the, the kids or the grandkids to church, and then it's the uh, children's director's job or the youth director's job or the pastor's job to kind of shape them up and kind of spit out this mature Christian at some point. And, and the church, praise God, has an active role to come alongside parents. But when you look in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, what you find is the person who's chiefly responsible for the spiritual formation of a child is mom and dad. And then, by extension, grandma and grandpa. 
It is the parent whose job it is to raise children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And, and so, Redemption Church's job is to come alongside moms and dads and help them by whatever means necessary we can to raise that next generation in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Hey, Christian, do you want to hear these words someday? I love these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear those? You remember when those words are going to be said? Those words are going to be said on that judgment day when we stand before Jesus. And if he, by his grace, has so given us salvation and carried us, those are the words we're going to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You might hear all this and, and all these qualifications, and, and if you're a young man in here or an older man ever thinking about maybe serving in the church as, as either a deacon or an elder, you may say, uh-uh, I ain't never doing that. That's too hard. I am never going to step foot in there. You may say, well, why bother? And it's because the Christian pastorate is a noble work. How many callings do we have God taking time to say in the Bible, this is an excellent life work? I, I mean, when I think about the different things I could do in, in work, uh, the Christian calling on me, I'll just tell you, I didn't always want to be a pastor. When I was little, my grandfather served as pastor, and, and actually some of you have, have met him, and I've told you he was the pastor of Hyde Park Baptist Church many, many years ago. And, but I saw Grandpa go through a series of churches, and he was basically always poor, didn't have a lot of money, and had some great church experiences, had some rocky ones. I, I was there once when uh, people said some very mean things about my grandfather. And then in college, I, I looked around, the pastors I knew were I mean, let me just face it, they were old and bald and fat and poor. And uh, as a young man, I had different aspirations in life. You know, I didn't want to be old, bald, fat, and poor. I wanted to make some money and make an impact on the world. And, and so I just kind of told Jesus, hey, the pastor, that is not for me. You know, just thank you, uh, no thank you kind of thing. And God had to do a work on, on my heart. I had a, a great pastor in Gainesville, Florida, Gary Crawford, who took me under his wing and, and, and just helped me start to teach the Bible to children and, and, and in the nursery. And then it became some of the middle schoolers, praise God, and then some of the high schoolers, some of the college students, some of the adults, and then and challenged me on whether or not I was called to the ministry. And after some wrestling there, I, I finally uh, surrendered to that after the faithful prayings of my wife and uh, what I want to tell you is this. After being in pastoral ministry now for a number of years, there is no vocation on planet Earth that is more rewarding, more challenging, more difficult, uh, more humbling, more incredible than being a Christian pastor. It will stretch you to no ends. It will make you so aware of how you are uh, incapable and in over your head and dependent on the Lord Jesus. And you get to see eternal things happen and be part of, in my mind, the greatest opportunity there is. So if there's anybody in here who's got that nudge, you know, maybe someday I could pastor. Let me just tell you, it's going to kick your behind 
and it will be worth it. You will love it. Anybody who desires uh, the Christian pastor, it desires a noble work. I'll never forget the mentoring that God gave me in, in just numerous Christian pastors who helped. And uh, if, if, again, there's a young man who hears this, seek out some Christian mentor, somebody who's pastored for a few years to help you. Mark Morton in Reno, Nevada was that for me, and he was a very hands-on teacher. Pastor Mark asked me one day, well, do you learn what you're supposed to say when you baptize somebody? And I've been to seminary. Oh, yeah, Mark, I know what to say. I know. And he said, did they show you how to baptize somebody? I kind of thought about it. It's like, well, well we didn't exactly have a lab at Southern where, where they, they, you know, we got in and uh, dunked somebody, but I kind of thought, well, it can't be that hard. And Mark, knowing a few more things than I did, said, hey, meet me at the church on Saturday, wear your bathing suit, and you're going to learn how to baptize. I said, all right, you know, if that's what you think I need. Didn't seem that difficult to me, just kind of down and up. And so filled up the baptistry, we got in it, I went through several of the words to say, and when I got ready to baptize, you know, he taught me, you know, put his hands here, I put my hands there. Uh, Pastor Mark Morton, he's about 6'4", weighs about 220, 225 pounds. Uh, he went as limp as a wet noodle. I mean, just collapsed right there in the baptistry. And I dropped him. And I mean, the splash was so big, it got on the guitar and the music stands. And I mean, just I think for humility's sake, he had brought our intern in, the young 18-year-old. He was just laughing in the front row because I dropped the senior pastor right there in the baptistry. But, you know, I, I think about that. And I'm just so grateful for uh, Christian pastors like Pastor Mark who, who helped me just understand through different ways what it means to be a pastor. And so if there's anyone who's wrestling with that call, talk to somebody. There'll be three aspects, an external call. That's what we've talked through, these qualifications to being a pastor. There will be an internal call. That is that you'll want to be a pastor. You will aspire or desire it. And then there's going to be a spiritual call. This is what Paul meant when elsewhere he told the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You see who made them overseers? It wasn't some other pastor. It wasn't some other council. It, it was the Holy Spirit. So there is this mysterious spiritual aspect to the call. Now, the good thing is all three will agree you know, you're not going to say, and if you ever have a young man say, hey, I think I'm called to pastor. What do you think? And, and you see in their life, it just is not lining up, right? <laughs> there is just, they are not meeting the qualifications for pastoring in any way, shape, or form. And then they say, well, but I know I'm called because the Holy Spirit told me so. You can say, hey, 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 maybe someday, but the Holy Spirit has made it clear to me in Scripture that you are supposed to meet these qualifications and you are not, not there yet. So, the external call, the internal call, and the spiritual call will align. Church family, if Redemption Church is going to thrive as a church of Jesus, we not only need a godly team of pastors and elders, we need a church body who holds us accountable to what it means to be a pastor. And I, I, I mean this desperately. I need you to pray for me every week. 
I need you to pray the Lord's protection on me, on Wesley, on Jeff, on Brother Chuck, on Brother Don. Pray for them that that Satan would stay away from our families and that God would keep us faithful. I want you to also take just a minute. Look around this room. Just just look around. You're going to see those who you know are moms and dads, those you know who are grandmas and grandpas. Pray for our families. We are living in a day and age where the family is under attack. And spiritually, moms and dads, hey, you have a tough task ahead of you. You are called to raise your kids in the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and that's hard. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you, I want you to start, if you haven't already, doing devotion time in your families at home. And it doesn't have to be hard. It can be reading one verse of scripture, praying with your kids, talking a little bit. And if you really want to mix it up, sing with them a little bit. Uh, they, they, they probably will love it and sing louder than you will. But pray with them, read the Bible, talk with them, and sing with them. Please consider doing that. Now, you might say, well, I don't know what to do. I can't do that. Ask somebody. And, and if you're here as a, somebody who has walked with Jesus for many years, you've, you've seen Jesus do this work, would you please help these young families? Come alongside them, love them, help them, coach them. It, it might be as simple as having them for dinner, and all you do at dinner is you pray before you eat, and you talk a little bit about how good God is. That's the start of a family devotion, and that's so helpful. Uh, you might meet somebody, uh, if, if you're someone who's walked with the Lord for a while, who doesn't have any kind of family Bible, and you get to be part of giving them a family Bible and, and helping them that way. But, but we need those who've walked with the Lord for a while to come alongside us and help us. You're going to see the children, Lord willing, in the service more. This is an intentional discipleship step to to make it normal for children to worship God with us as one church family. Your step of love, if you are a senior, uh, mature Christian who's walked with God, maybe just to sit with a family and help them through the service. What an act of love. Oh, please, church, help us to be that one church family that helps parents raise up children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now, all of this comes to this conclusion with the words at the end of 1 Timothy. Stick with me long enough to hear these words. Verse 16 says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All we've been talking about, it seems like, is leadership in the church this morning, right? Why is it that at the end of a chapter, all on pastors and deacons, Paul would have this song all about Jesus? And it's because... This church doesn't belong to a pastor. It belongs to Jesus. And the only hope we have as Redemption Church rests in the arms of Jesus that were scarred for you and for me. We're going to close in a prayer here in just a moment. But I want to challenge you, whatever this is, to take your next step in walking with Jesus, not only for yourself, but for this church. For some of you, that next step may be the first step where you, you just trust 
that there is someone who loved you enough to die for you, that you can be forgiven of your sins. If that's your step, take it this morning, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. Your next step may be, hey, I've given my life to Jesus, but I've never actually been baptized as a Christian. I need to take that step. Be ready to take that step, next step. Your next step may be, you know, I've, I've been to this church a while, but I've never actually joined the church as a member. How do I do that? How does this become my church? I want to challenge you to take that step. Your next step may be, you know, I've been a member of this church for years, but I've never actually served at that church. I've, I've never actually done anything other than just kind of show up. Please, Redemption, we need you. We need one another. And, and then, like I said, you may be somebody who just... You are gifted by Jesus to come alongside somebody, maybe a parent, and just help them walk with the Lord. As we close, just ask Jesus, Jesus, what's my next step? Let's pray and go to him. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that your word doesn't fail. It doesn't leave us in the dark on what it means to walk with you. And I thank you for the church. Jesus, this group, as I even heard this morning, of hypocrites, of those who uh, desperately need you. Uh, Jesus, you do love us. There is mercy for us in your name. There is forgiveness. And you're doing a work to redeem not only us as individuals, but us together as a family. I pray for redemption. Knit us together as one church family. Lord Jesus, if there's somebody here who needs to take that first step as as a follower of you, would you give them the courage to do that right now? Hey, if you know that you need to give your life to Jesus, pray something like this in your own words. Jesus, I have sinned against you. I've done wrong things, and I know that I cannot make them right by my own effort. Jesus, I believe that you really did come and live a perfect life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. And Jesus, I'm committing today to follow you as the Lord of my life. Be my Savior and Lord. That's not a magic incantation or anything, but if you mean those words, that's all it takes to become a Christian. If you know that you need to take that next step, have the courage right now to say, Jesus, please help me to get baptized. Please help me to walk with you. I'm going to invite Brother West to come up and play some music. But as we uh, finish, if you're a Christian, would you just pray for your church? God, be with us. Give us the strength and courage to walk faithfully with you. To, To... love and to lead in such a way that, Jesus, you are glorified. Uh, Jesus, I pray especially right now for the moms and dads in this room. Help them. Help them to love their kids, to open their Bibles, to pray for them, to, to do that work of raising up their kids in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And Jesus, would you help us here at Redemption to be one church family, to treat one another like brothers and sisters, to, to, to come alongside each other, to know one another's names and to do meals together and to, to be Redemption Church for each other. Please, God, give us that heart. Um, I, I pray for the children right now. 
Give them those ears to hear. And God, if there's a child who, who today needs to trust you, Jesus, needs to, to take that step and, and, and lean on you for salvation, give them the courage right now, please, to step out. Jesus, you are God, and we need you. We're asking you to be here and do a work right now. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Hey, I invite you to stand. We're not going to belabor this, but from children to adult to senior adult, now is a chance to take that step. I'm going to invite you to do something a little brave and just come down and talk to me and say whatever God is leading you to do. If he has put something on your heart to do, come down and talk to me about it. I want to celebrate that step of obedience you're taking.